It's the 9th of August in the year of our salvation, 2007, and here's another podcast from Father Z. We welcome as our guest today, Joseph Ratzinger, now gloriously reigning as Pope Benedict XVI, our wonderful Holy Father. We are going to drill down into the question of silence with him today uh, by using uh, Ratzinger's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, which was published in English by Ignatius Press in the year 2000. In a couple podcasts, I made use of Joseph Ratzinger's fine book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, to help people understand some points which might puzzle people about the older form of Mass and even the the norms for the newer form of Mass, if they were properly followed. Uh, For example, uh, you hear that old chestnut by enemies of the older liturgy that the old form of Mass uh, means that the, the priest has his back to the people, as they say. Of course, that's not what's going on, but that is, uh, from you know the outward spectator who really doesn't know what's going on, it's kind of what it looks like. So in one podcast, I used Ratzinger's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, uh, which he very consciously named after the famous book by Romano Guardini, a book that uh, participated, or shall we say, really contributed to the liturgical movement of the 20th century. I used this uh, book by Ratzinger to explain what's really going on with the orientation of the altar and with the position of the priest at the altar so that everyone is facing east, everyone's facing Christ, the risen Christ who is to come back. Uh, Well, another aspect of the older Mass that puzzles some people is silence. Sometimes they are frustrated uh, when they go to the old Mass, you know, maybe for the first time, that they can't hear everything that the priest is saying. They're not used to that. And they don't realize that, first of all, the priest is not talking to them but uh, rather he's talking directly to God, and he's doing so on his own, which the rubrics calls him to do, and which is his right and duty to do. He also has to prepare himself and say prayers for himself in a certain way so that he can then fulfill his proper role in the liturgy. And people also don't realize that they can participate in that prayer, even if they can't hear it. They can participate in the silence of the priest's prayer by uniting their own hearts and minds to it. And so when 
uh, people are so used to going to mass and hearing an unrelenting stream of words or constantly uh, hearing people shouting at them with microphones the silence of the older form of mass and even the newer form of mass properly celebrated can be kind of unsettling for them they don't understand the silence they don't know how to participate in it and use it and so we need to teach our people about silence, what it means. And I think the older form of mass can help us understand that properly. So let's hear from Joseph Ratzinger's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, where he talks about silence, but he also touches on many other interesting points. And I want you to listen to a few for a few things in this reading, and uh, which is one of the subsections of the part of the spirit of the liturgy, which touches on the body and liturgy. Keep your ears tuned for comments uh, about inculturation. He might not use that word inculturation, but he talks about it. So listen for what he's talking about. Uh, listen to what he talks about uh, the the futility of creating more Eucharistic prayers. Uh, because, you know, in a response to uh, people not understanding why the canon is in silence uh, or, or not understanding what the, what the canon, uh, the Eucharistic prayer is all about. And so some people thought it was important to make a whole bunch of new Eucharistic prayers and why uh, Ratzinger thinks that that's futile. Listen to his comments, his fascinating comments about uh, all of the faithful at Mass making the responses. This is very interesting. And also, uh, he presents a, a beautiful theology of a hierarchy of actors at Mass. And of course, first of all, God himself, who he is the one true actor at Mass. But then, uh, how the, the priest uh, participates in God's action and how he presides over the participation of all the faithful. This is a very interesting section from Joseph Ratzinger's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. Let's listen to it now. The Human Voice It is clear that in the liturgy of the Logos, of the eternal Word, the Word and thus the human voice have an essential role to play. In this little book, which is not intended to give instructions for liturgical practice, but only insights into the spirit of the liturgy, we do not need to discuss the detailed forms in which the human voice is deployed in the liturgy. We have seen much of this already in earlier chapters, especially in connection with sacred music. First, there is the oratio, the priestly mode of prayer, in which the priest, in the name of the whole community, speaks through Christ in the Holy Spirit to the Father. Then there are the various forms of proclamation, the readings, prophet and apostle as they used to say in the early church, meaning by prophecy, the whole of the Old Testament, and the Gospel, solemnly sung at High Mass, and the homily, which in the strict sense is reserved to the bishop and then to the priest and deacon as well. Then there is the response to the word, antivort, by which the assembled congregation takes up and accepts the word, 
This structure of word and response, which is essential to the liturgy, is modeled on the basic structure of the process of divine revelation, in which word and response, the speech of God and the receptive hearing of the bride, the church, go together. In the liturgy, the response has different forms. For example, there is the acclamation, shout, which is of great importance in the world of ancient law. The response of acclamation confirms the arrival of the word and makes the process of revelation of God's giving of himself in the word at last complete. The Amen, the Alleluia, and the Et Cum Spiritu Tuo, and so on, are all part of this. One of the important results of the liturgical renewal is the fact that the people really do again respond in the acclamation and do not have to leave it to a representative, the altar server. This is the only way the true structure of the liturgy can be restored, a structure that, as we have just seen, makes concrete in divine worship the fundamental structure of divine action. God, the revealer, did not want to stay as solus Deus, solus Christus, God alone, Christ alone. No, he wanted to create a body for himself, to find a bride. He sought a response. It was really for her that the word went forth. Alongside the acclamation and the various forms of meditative appropriation of the word, especially in the singing of psalms, but also in hymns, the different forms of which, responsorial and antiphonal, do not need to be discussed in detail here. Then there is the new song, the great song the church sings as she goes off toward the music of the new heaven and new earth. This explains why, in addition to congregational singing, Christian liturgy of its very nature finds a suitable place for the choir, and for musical instruments too, which no purism about collective singing should be allowed to contest. The possibilities will, of course, always differ from place to place, but the church as a whole must, for the sake of God, strive for the best, for from the very nature of the liturgy, by an inner necessity, comes a culture that becomes a standard for all secular culture. We are realizing more and more clearly that silence is part of the liturgy. We respond by singing and praying to the God who addresses us, but the greater mystery, surpassing all words, summons us to silence. It must, of course, be a silence with content, not just the absence of speech and action. We should expect the liturgy to give us a positive stillness that will restore us such stillness will not be just a pause in which a thousand thoughts and desires assault us, but a time of recollection, giving us an inward peace, allowing us to draw breath and rediscover the one thing necessary which we have forgotten. That is why silence cannot be simply made, organized as if it were one activity among many. It is no accident that on all sides people are seeking techniques of meditation, a spirituality for emptying the mind. 
one of man's deepest needs is making its presence felt a need that is manifestly not being met in our present form of the liturgy for silence to be fruitful as we have already said it must not be just a pause in the action of the liturgy no it must be an integral part of the liturgical event how is that to be done in recent times the attempt has been made to insert two short periods of silence into the liturgy as a way of addressing the problem a pause for reflection after the homily and a period of silent prayer after the reception of holy communion the pause for silence after the homily has not proved to be very satisfactory it seems artificial with the congregation just waiting for as long as the celebrant feels inclined to let it go on what is more the homily often leaves questions and contradictions in people's minds rather than an invitation to meet the lord as a general rule the homily should conclude with an encouragement to prayer which would give some content to the brief pause but even then it remains just a pause in the liturgy not something from which a liturgy of silence can develop more helpful and spiritually appropriate is the silence after communion this in all truth is the moment for an interior conversation with the lord who has given himself to us for that essential communicating that entry into the process of communication without which the external reception of the sacrament becomes mere ritual and therefore unfruitful unfortunately there are often hindrances that spoil this precious moment the distribution of communion continues with the noise of people going back and forth the relation to the rest of the liturgical action the distribution often lasts too long which means that the priest feels the need to move the liturgy on quickly so that there is no empty period of waiting and restlessness with people already getting ready to leave nevertheless wherever possible this silence after communion should be used and the faithful should be given some guidance for interior prayer in some places the preparation of the gifts is intended as a time of silence this makes good sense and is fruitful if we see the preparation not just as a pragmatic external action but as an essentially interior process we need to see that we ourselves are or should be the real gift in the word-centered sacrifice through our sharing in jesus christ's act of self-offering to the father of which we spoke in the first part then this silence is not just a period of waiting something external then something happens inwardly that corresponds to what is going on outwardly we are disposing ourselves preparing the way placing ourselves before the lord asking him to make us ready for transformation shared silence becomes shared prayer indeed shared action a journey out of our everyday life toward the lord toward merging our time with his own liturgical education ought to regard it as its duty to facilitate this in inner process so that in the common experience of silence the inner process becomes a truly liturgical event and the silence is filled with content the structure of the liturgy itself provides for other moments of silence first 
there is the silence of the consecration at the elevation of the consecrated species it is an invitation to direct our eyes toward christ to look at him from within in a gaze that is at once gratitude adoration and petition for our own transformation there are fashionable objections that would try to talk us out of this silence at the consecration the showing of the gifts it is said is a medieval error which disturbs the structure of the eucharistic prayer the the expression of a false and too grossly materialistic piety the argument is that the elevation is out of keeping with the essential direction of the eucharist at this moment so it is claimed we should not be worshiping christ the whole canon addresses the father to whom we pray through christ we do not need to go into these criticisms in detail the essential answer to them is provided by what was said in chapter two about reverence for the blessed sacrament and the rightfulness of the medieval developments which unfolded what had been there from the beginning in the faith of the church it is correct to say that the canon has a trinitarian structure and consequently as a totality moves through christ in the holy spirit to the father but the liturgy in this respect knows nothing of rigidity and fixation the reformed missal of nineteen seventy itself places on our lips a greeting directed toward the lord we proclaim your death o lord and we confess your resurrection until you come in glory the moment when the lord comes down and transforms bread and wine to become his body and blood cannot fail to stun to the very core of their being those who participate in the eucharist by faith and prayer when this happens we cannot do other than fall to our knees to greet him the consecration is the moment of god's great actio in the world for us it draws our eyes and hearts on high for a moment the world is silent everything is silent and in that silence we touch the eternal for one beat of the heart we step out of time into god's being with us another approach to the question of content filled silence is provided by the liturgy itself there is a silence that is part of the liturgical action not an interruption i am thinking of the silent prayers of the priest those who hold a sociological or activistic view of the priest's duties in the mass frown upon these prayers and whenever possible they leave them out the priest is defined in a narrowly sociological and functionalistic way as the presider at the liturgical celebration which is thought of a, as a kind of meeting if that is what he is then of course for the sake of the meeting he has to be in action all the time but the priest's duties in the mass are much more than a matter of chairing a meeting the priest presides over an encounter with the living god and as a person who is on his way to god the silent prayers of the priest invite him to make his task truly personal so that he may give his whole self to the lord they highlight the way in which all of us each one personally yet together with everyone else have to approach the lord 
The number of these priestly prayers has been greatly reduced in the liturgical reform, but, thank God, they do exist. They have to exist now as before. First, there is the short prayer preparation before the proclamation of the gospel. The priest should pray it with real recollection and devotion, conscious of his responsibility to pray, proclaim the gospel aright, conscious, too, of the need which that entails for a purification of lips and heart. When the priest does this, he shows the congregation the dignity and grandeur of the gospel, and helps them understand how tremendous it is that God's word should come into our midst. The priest's prayer creates reverence and a space for hearing the word. Again, liturgical education is necessary if the priest's prayer is to be understood, and the people are not only to stand up physically, but also to rise up spiritually and open the ears of their hearts to the gospel. We have already spoken of the preparation of the gifts, the significance of which in the new rite is not entirely clear. The priest's reception of Holy Communion is preceded by two very beautiful and profound prayers, from which, to avoid the silence being too long, he is to choose one. Perhaps we shall again one day take the time to use both. But even if only one of them is prayed, the priest should with all the more reason really pray it in a recollected silence as a personal preparation for receiving the Lord. This will help to bring everyone else into silence before the sacred presence, and then going to communion will not degenerate into something merely external. This is particularly necessary because in the present order of the Mass the sign of peace frequently causes a lot of hustle and bustle in the congregation, into which the invitation to behold the Lamb of God then comes as a rather abrupt intervention. If in a moment of quiet the eyes of the hearts of all are directed toward the Lamb, this can become a time of blessed silence. After the priest's reception of communion, another, formerly there were two, silent prayer of thanksgiving is provided for him, which can again and should be made their own by the faithful. I should like to mention at this point that old prayer books contain alongside a lot of kitsch much that is a valuable source for prayer, much that has grown out of deep interior experience, and can again become today a school for prayer. What St. Paul says in the Epistle to the Romans, that we do not know how to pray as we ought, Romans 8, verse 26, applies even more to us today. So often we are without words in our encounter with God. The Holy Spirit does indeed teach us to pray, he does indeed give us the words, as St. Paul says, but he also uses human mediation. The prayers that have risen up from the hearts of believers under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are a school provided us by the Holy Spirit that will slowly open our mute mouths and help us to learn how to pray and to fill the silence. In 1978, to the annoyance of many liturgists, I said that in no sense does the whole canon always have to be said out loud. After much consideration, I should like to repeat and underline the point here, in hope that, twenty years later, this thesis will be better understood. 
Meanwhile, in their efforts to reform the Missal, the German liturgists have explicitly stated that, of all things, the Eucharistic prayer, the high point of the Mass, is in crisis. Since the reform of the liturgy, an attempt has been made to meet the crisis by incessantly inventing new Eucharistic prayers, and in the process we have sunk farther and farther into banality. Multiplying words is no help. That is all too evident. The liturgists have suggested all kinds of remedies, which certainly contain elements that are worthy of consideration. However, as far as I can see, they balk now as in the past at the possibility that silence, too, silence especially, might constitute communion before God. It is no accident that in Jerusalem, from a very early time, parts of the canon were prayed in silence, and that in the West the silent canon, overlaid in part with meditative singing, became the norm. To dismiss all this as the result of misunderstandings is just too easy. It really is not true that reciting the whole Eucharistic prayer out loud and without interruptions is a prerequisite for the participation of everyone in this central act of the Mass. My suggestion in 1978 was as follows. First, liturgical education ought to aim at making the faithful familiar with the essential meaning and fundamental orientation of the canon. Secondly, the first words of the various prayers should be said out loud as a kind of cue for the congregation, so that each individual in his silent prayer can take up the intonation and bring the personal into the communal and the communal into the personal. Anyone who has experienced a church united in the silent praying of the canon will know what a really filled silence is. It is at once a loud and penetrating cry to God and a spirit-filled act of prayer. Here everyone does pray the canon together, albeit in a bond with the special task of the priestly ministry. Here everyone is united, laid hold of by Christ, and led by the Holy Spirit into that common prayer to the Father which is the true sacrifice, the love that reconciles and unites God and the world. was a section from Joseph Ratzinger's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, and it was mainly about silence, but it touched on all sorts of themes, and we can go back and consider a couple of them very briefly. First, uh, think about that issue of inculturation in that little section. He didn't use the word inculturation directly, but he really was talking about that at a certain point. Now think about it, inculturation this way. There's always an exchange going on between the church and the world. It can't be helped. We're human beings. However, 
what the church has to give must have logical priority in this dynamic exchange constantly taking place. The church must set the example to influence the world and not the other way around. Once the world has embraced and integrated into a culture what the church has to offer, then that culture can produce thereby music and art and architecture and all those things which the church can then in turn embrace as her own and inculturate and uh, integrate into the liturgy and building churches and writing music and doing all these things the church expresses things from the people that way which are authentically from the people because this is a people who has been shaped by god through the church remember the church has a mandate to shape and form the world and that's part of what we all have to do in our vocations and so true enculturation must give logical priority to what the church has to give to the world and not the other way around if the world is given logical priority or if things from the world are integrated improperly into liturgy then that's a false enculturation and it's destructive and actually does violence to the liturgy and to the people of god because it isn't being done properly another point we should return to is the idea that silence is not just the absence of words we don't need artificial pauses built into the liturgy built into the mass we need a kind of silence which is truly active but active in the interior sense he makes this wonderful comment about a silence that's charged charged with meaning that you can almost feel when everybody is 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 actively participating in the action of the liturgy which at that moment happens to be silent and so uh, Ratzinger's remarks about the silent canon and the prayers of the priest are extremely important people can make the priests silent prayers their own through willed unity with them and by their own priesthood that comes from baptism and that leads to a consideration of uh, the moments in mass when people then make outward responses when their voices are raised and there's a lot of debate among traditionalists about whether or not uh, people in the pews should make responses uh, they should make the the acclamations uh, ratzinger says yes and I tend to agree with him, especially in sung masses, about the low mass, the quieter mass, I'm not quite so sure. But I really think that uh, it should uh, people should not be reduced to uh, a single or maybe a pair of representatives. That's, you know, that means the, the servers there at the altar making the responses for everyone. Uh, Ratzinger uses this idea of acclamatio, which was so important for Roman law which signaled approval of the people who otherwise had no voice. Now this doesn't mean that people have to be doing everything or saying everything or shouting all the time. But there are those moments which pertain to them. And also, Ratzinger has a very theological point about the responses. The responses by the people are fundamental to the deeper structure of liturgy in which God speaks, and in his speaking he is desiring a response, an answer. It's a it's a an exchange and so some responses should not be left merely to a representative of the people but should be made by the whole people responding to god's invitation to speak well since that uh, reading was fairly long i'm going to wrap up this podcast 
I hope to see you all at the blog, What Does the Prayer Really Say? WDTPRS.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra. You can come there, you can make your comments. Uh, there's a place on the left sidebar down toward the bottom where you can uh, click, and if you have a microphone attached to your computer, you can leave me some voicemail, and I can actually integrate them into podcasts uh, when they're appropriate. In the meantime, I'd ask you kindly to say a prayer for me, as I will you. May God bless you and yours. 